please remain standing and pray with me. Almighty God, I pray that you would uh, grant us all listening ears and tender hearts to hear the good news proclaimed this morning. Lord, awaken us to your Spirit's unction within us as he speaks to us, calls us, convicts us, Lord, draws us to you. Make us awake to that. Drive far from us hardness of heart, coldness of heart. Be with me, the preacher of your word this morning. Grant me confidence in the word that you have given me. Lord, grant me confidence in the gospel. Lord, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. So come, Holy Spirit, now and do the work of evangelizing us, reminding us of good news this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, folks. Uh, You've overcome daylight savings time, and you are uh, overcoming being church sickles. So congratulations on being overcomers. Overcomers. Well, this passage this morning, we're looking at Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. And this passage from Luke this morning contains one of the most poignant, heart-wrenching statements that Jesus ever uttered. Then listen to it again. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. You were not willing. In this passage, Jesus is clearly, he's saying, how often would I have gathered you? He's clearly identifying himself with the God of Israel, who through the centuries repeatedly reached out to his chosen but rebellious people only to have them reject his overtures of love and reconciliation. Jesus is saying, in effect, I am the one. I'm the one who sent you the prophets, who called you back to Yahweh. I am the one you rejected then and are still rejecting to this day. So, beloved, these words aren't just directed to the nexus of Judaism in the first century. No, the New Testament writers make it clear that the church itself, you and I, the church, have been grafted in, grafted in to Israel. Israel's story, therefore, now is our story. And that's what St. Paul is telling his mostly Gentile church in Corinth, that church plant in Corinth, when he says this in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, he says, now these things, what things? He tells the story of Israel and how Israel had been uh, delivered from slavery and gone through the exodus and all the things that occurred after that. He said, now these things, Paul says, took place as examples for us. They're examples for us because we are a part of Israel's story now. So that means that while God, listen, while God is certainly dealing specifically with Jerusalem in this passage, Jerusalem here in Luke chapter 13 becomes the proxy, the stand-in for all of God's rebellious, defiant human creation to whom he has reached out in the ultimate expression of love when he came to us in the form of Jesus Christ, comes to us in his son, Jesus Christ. And that being the case, listen, that being the case, I think that this very specific message to Jerusalem in the first century contains broader principles that speak to you and I today. 
And that's what I want us to look at this morning. Jesus is not just speaking to Jerusalem. He is speaking to me and to you, to all of us. And if that is the case, if he's speaking to us, what is he saying? Well, to begin with, Jerusalem exemplifies a basic truth about humanity. So please listen to this. If you're writing something down, you might want to write this down. Here it is. We don't like God. Basic truth about humanity. We don't like God. In our natural fallen condition, we are naturally hostile to God. Coming to God is never our idea. It is never our initiative. Let me tell you right now something that most of us will never admit before we knew Christ. It's not that we just don't like God, we hate God. In our natural state, we hate God. Left to ourselves, apart from God's prevenient and saving grace, we are God's enemies. That sounds shocking, but that is exactly what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that none of us ever seeks for God in our natural state. You probably remember the passage from Romans chapter 3. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. And then Paul says a few people seek God. Every now and then want to seek God. Maybe one out of a hundred. No. He says, no one. How many is in the set? No one. Zero. I learned that in first grade. Set, set math. They started using sets. And that's why I can't do math. No one, no one seeks God, no one understands. And that's why when people tell, tell me, which they actually rarely do any longer, I don't hear this very often anymore, that they are spiritual seekers, when I hear someone tell me they're a spiritual seeker, that either means one of two things. Number one, they are genuinely being moved by the Holy Spirit in their heart, and they are indeed seeking God because God is initiating contact with them reaching out to them in grace, wooing them to himself. So that's one of the things it could mean. Or number two, and unfortunately this was the most frequent meaning, uh, oh, I'm a seeker. No, it means they're totally just blowing smoke. They're just blowing sunshine up my trouser leg. They are using their never-ending seeking as a way to keep God at arm's length while they continue to seek for different options. This allows them to remain in control of their lives and rebellion against God and feeling self-congratulatory all at the same time. So we don't see God because we hate God. Now, don't get me wrong. We love, listen, we love our little homemade gods. We love our little invented gods. We love our precious little idols. We love the little God that we made in our own image, in our imagination, who was just like us or maybe a little inferior to us. That way we can always feel really righteous. We love the little God that we made up. It's the living God. It's the God of the Bible. It's the God who came to us in Jesus Christ. The objectively and stubbornly real God, the self-existing Lord God Almighty that we hate. Now, you think that's that's strong language, but it just happens over and over in the Scriptures. In in Romans chapter 1, verse 30, where Paul says, and since they did not acknowledge God, they became God-haters. God haters, haters of God, Romans chapter 1, verse 30. Or Romans chapter 8, verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh, listen, is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Or James chapter 4, verse 4. 
You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Well, that's not enough to convince me. Okay, Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Well, I didn't say anything about hate. I just said enemies. Like, I love you. You're enemy. No, Jesus said of those who did not receive him, he said, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. So when it comes to God, there is no such, here's the point. When it comes to God, there is no such thing is as spiritual neutrality. We are either always moving towards God or always moving away from Him. There is no neutral ground. The Bible does not give us that option. But why this visceral rejection of God? What is the, the source of it? Well, bottom line, I, I think it is this. Here's why I think we're so offended by this. Why well, we don't like God. Why well, we hate God. Here it is. It's, it's this. It's because God is God and we aren't. Because God is God and we aren't. We want to be God. We don't want this God, this objective real God, bossing us around. You know, in one parable in Luke 19, Jesus compares our relationship to God as those of citizens of a king who reject their rule over them, and he says this, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. We don't want this man to reign over us. And that is the condition of the human heart. So, beloved, left to ourselves, we are not God's friends. God repeatedly sent prophets with messages to return to me, come back to his chosen people Israel. And over and over again, they imprisoned and killed them. God reaches out, and we reject. And the main reason that we stoned the prophets and those sent to us is because we cannot, listen, it's because we cannot take our hatred of God out directly against God, so we take it out on his representatives. And the same thing continues today. Strong words, but true. Listen, the contempt, the vitriol, and the hatred spewed out against traditional biblical Christians from everyone from apostatizing progressive evangelicals to secular elites in the West is the modern example of this, of Jesus' words in Luke 13. In fact, Jesus says this is the case. He said this in John 15, verse 18 and 19. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And I think that's why, if we're honest, many of us would admit that we hated Christians before we became believers. I don't mean nominal Christians. We didn't hate nominal Christians because we were pretty confident that they didn't really believe any of that stuff either. I'm talking about those Christians who went around talking about Jesus as if they had really met him, acting like they talked to him and heard from him. We transfer our anti-God feelings onto the closest representatives we have at hand, and thinking of my life before Christ, 
I can resonate with how Rosaria Champagne Butterfield, one of the world's best names ever given to a child, Rosaria Champagne Butterfield, her parents did love her. Her, her. her sentiments describe my feelings about Christians before she became a believer. And listen to her. She wrote an essay a while back. <clears throat> she said, the word Jesus, the word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Those who professed the name commanded my pity and wrath. As a university professor, I tired of students who seemed to believe that knowing Jesus meant knowing little else. Christians, in particular, were bad readers, always seizing opportunities to insert a Bible verse into a conversation with the same point as a punctuation mark to end it rather than deepen it. Stupid, pointless, meaningless, menacing. That's what I thought of Christians and their God, Jesus, who in paintings looked as powerful as a Breck shampoo commercial model. And then I love how she ends her essay. I despised Christians, and then somehow I became one. But I want you to know this morning, speaking as a former enemy of God, that if you are God's enemy, there is good news for you because you are the object of God's special love. If you hate God and if you are his enemy, if you would never say, I hate God, but you know I really detest those Christians, you are the object of God's special favor and love. Did you know that? Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 11, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Listen to this. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. You see, God is not some isolated, unmoved mover in the sky, but rather a living, personal God who is energetically pursuing his lost creation with extravagant, lavish, sacrificial love. God has just kept coming and coming and coming to us like a love-struck teenager who will not take no for an answer. He keeps sending us letters. He keeps sending us his friends. We tear up the letters and we slam the door in the faces of his friends after we have told them what losers they are. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Down through the ages, listen, God has reached out to his lost and rebellious people, people just like you and me, people who basically have said to God, we have all the religion we need, thank you very much. And if we needed one, we surely wouldn't look to you. Jesus is the very embodiment of God's 
heart for all humankind. I wanted to gather you to me, to be in relationship with me, to love you and protect you, but you would not. And the only thing in the universe that stands between me and my great love for you is you. But you would not. Those are among the saddest words ever uttered. And in those words is revealed the nature of God's judgment. You would not. In those words is revealed the nature of God's judgment against human rebellion. You know, so many, so many people are unsure of or are turned off by this whole Christianity thing because it speaks of the possibility of eternal judgment. We think that the character of judgment is that God is just sitting up there on the throne in heaven and he can't wait to throw sinners into hell. Just can't wait. Looking for a sinner to throw into hell. Wow, make my day. It sounds cruel and primitive and vengeful. But this passage reveals that just the opposite is true. And that's the whole point of this lament over Jerusalem. God's heart is a longing heart. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He is longing to show mercy. He is longing to embrace and to love his rebel human creation. He has sent messenger after messenger calling us back to himself. And instead of heeding God's invitation, we have ignored, insulted, persecuted, and killed those messengers. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce says that all that are in hell choose it. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek find, to those who knock, it is open. And in the face of our rejection, God does something in Jesus Christ that some of his most ardent enemies are totally incapable and not equipped to cope with. Because he loved us, because God refused to write us off, he refused to wipe us out, and just start over. And love this God who came to us in Jesus Christ. This is a thing that was just mind-boggling. This God of love who came to us in Jesus Christ, let us kill him. Let us kill him. Not with a lethal injection, but in the most violent and painful way we could imagine. We nailed his naked, whipped, and bleeding body onto a piece of wood and suspended him between heaven and earth on a cross. Jesus came to us with his arms wide open, like the wings of a mother hen, to embrace us and welcome us into God's family. And we took those outstretched arms, and we nailed them to a piece of timber, and we hung him up to die. And yet he still loved us. He still kept welcoming us to come to him, so that even on the cross, when the robber said, Lord, remember me, when you come into your kingdom, Jesus took him under his outstretched arms and said, Son, you can come home with me today. You can come home with me today to my house and never be separated from my love again. Professor of uh, visual arts, Barry Cranes, speaks to this character of God. He said several years ago, a friend relayed an account he considered to be a miraculous experience. He had become acquainted with an elderly neighbor who had a reputation for her often obstreperous behavior. And although she had grown up in the church, she'd abandoned any commitment to organized religion years before. One night, 
She fell asleep smoking in bed and ended up in a convalescent home. Realizing that his neighbor had only a short time to live, my friend began to visit her on a daily basis. And each time he entered her room, he found her in a fetal position with her head turned toward the wall. She did not respond to him in any way as he repeatedly shared the gospel with her. On the day before she died, he called on her one last time. He faithfully asked her the question, do you know that Jesus loves you and that he wants you to be with him forever? And as he sat by her bedside, she turned over, opened her eyes, and with a strong, clear voice replied, yes, he told me so this morning. Oh, how he loves you and me and every human being he has created. Jesus is a true friend to all of us sinners. And his arms remain open wide. How many times we walk by those arms and refuse to return that love, and then if we do that, look at the cross, and in your mind's eye, see the Son of God hanging there watching a careless world walk by. And the saddest words that Jesus ever spoke to that careless world he speaks to us, but you would not. So this morning, brothers and sisters, won't you change that would not to a yes, Lord, I will. I will come to you and let you wrap me up in your arms of love. I will let you have my life. I will stop ignoring you and start loving you in return. You can return that embrace of those outstretched arms this morning when you come to this table of the Lord, in this sacrament of Holy Communion, if you have ever been baptized but are now far away from Jesus, then you need to come with the rest of us redeemed, blood-bought sinners and receive. If you have never received Christ, if you have never accepted Christ, or if you want to commit your life again to Him, then you need to go to Randy this morning, who will be our prayer minister, and have him pray with you to help you receive Christ and to receive the love he has offered to you. Let's turn that would not to yes, Lord, I will. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, this morning and during Lent, many of us, Lord, who have walked with you a long time, recognize that we are far away from you again, and our hearts are cold towards you, and we need to back, that your arms remain open wide in love to us. This morning, Lord, help us to return. And many of us, perhaps uh, not here, but those maybe watching this online, perhaps there is someone who has never responded to the call of the gospel to receive reconciliation to God through Jesus Christ's suffering and death on our behalf on the cross. And Lord, if that is the case, turn their hearts to you, and may they flee to you for refuge. Come under your wings of mercy and become new creations through a relationship with Jesus. We ask it in his name.